Alrighty, how are you doing, my semi-fascists? Welcome to the program. Happy Tuesday. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Tomorrow is the big day at the North Carolina Supreme Court. Oral arguments begin in the Leandro case. We welcome back to the program Dr. Terry Stoops, and uh, he's from the John Locke Foundation. Hey, uh, Terry, how are you? Very good. Very Thanks busy. Yeah, very busy, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's a busy week for sure. Yeah. Uh, so first off, as we kind of always do, quick thumbnail sketch of what is the Leandro uh, school funding case about? Sure. Well, the case itself was filed in 1994 with school districts alleging that uh, they didn't receive an equal amount of funding compared to other districts. The state Supreme Court uh, ruled in 1997 that the um, plaintiff's arguments were sound and that students were not receiving what they would come to call a sound basic education. And uh, since uh, the early 2000s, the case has been remanded to a trial court to oversee the compliance, the state's compliance with whether students are receiving a sound basic education. And really that's where the action has been uh, for the most part, except for a brief stop at the state Supreme Court in 2004, that trial court judges, first Howard Manning, then David Lee, and now Michael Robinson, have been overseeing the case uh, that really centers around this question about what does it take to make sure that all children receive the education that the North Carolina Constitution says that they're entitled to? Uh, some and many on the left would say, well, it takes more money. And many on the right would say, well, it's a little more complicated than that. But unfortunately, we are really just talking about money at this point, And money is going to be the major aspect of the uh, oral argument that we're going to hear about uh, tomorrow morning at 930. Right, and specifically, who has the authority to allocate the money? Which I thought we all kind of agreed on what the rules were uh, as far as governing goes as to you know who gets to allocate the money, but apparently not, right? This is what the issue is over now? That's right, uh, and the state uh, constitution makes it very clear that the General Assembly has the responsibility to collect and distribute tax revenue, and that money can't be spent unless through an act appropriating the money. And the only body that it can pass an act is the General Assembly. But what is also going to be discussed is that the judge, uh, Judge Lee, had an order that we would that the state would go around the General Assembly and instead get the money via the state treasurer the state controller, and the Office of State Budget and Management. In other words, they would just reach in the state coffers and get the money without approval from the General Assembly. So the question really is, is that will judges, and Democrats have a 4-3 majority on the state Supreme Court, say that these other agencies can simply take money out of state coffers when the General Assembly uh, would not do so. This sets a very dangerous precedent because what's to stop uh, someone from suing the state over a constitutional claim and saying if the General Assembly won't fund my constitutional claim, then we have a precedent that says that these other state agencies can get the money instead. 
I always point out when we talk about Leandro that the legislature is not actually a named party in the lawsuit, right? Uh, the agreement to hire this consulting firm that created the comp- uh, the comprehensive remedial plan, uh, this uh, company called West Ed out of San Francisco. Uh, as far as I know, right, that was agreed upon by the court, but also the plaintiffs and the defendants. And that was done after Roy Cooper and Josh Stein uh, sort of got the reins uh, over uh, over their uh, response in this um, in this negotiation. It's it, it smacks to me of the same sort of collusive agreement that uh, the Board of Elections and Josh Stein's attorney general's office uh, uh, negotiated over access to the ballot uh, and uh, the election laws in 2020. That's a critical point that the plaintiffs and defendants and the interveners in the Leandro case got together and decided to collect the money from both private sources and government agencies to spend $2 million to, for this consultant to come up with this comprehensive remedial plan. It's a really uh, an awful plan that spreads money not only to our K-12 system, but to our preschools system and our community colleges and the UNC system. Uh, there are lots of shortcomings in this plan, but uh, really that's not the point. They wanted a uh, so-called independent consultant to tell them to spend billions of dollars, and that's exactly what this consultant did. But in, in collecting all this information and talking to all these people, the consultant never talked to anyone from the General Assembly. And in fact, I think a lot of the disagreement right now we have between the General Assembly and the courts and the Leandro parties would have been resolved had that consultant simply gone down to Jones Street and asked legislators for their input on the plan. Instead, and I think very purposefully, they decided not to consult with legislators and try to impose a plan on them, a plan that's really mediocre and certainly, in my opinion, will not lead to that sound basic education that the Leandro case has uh, said that all students are guaranteed to have. You have a piece up at the John Locke uh, Foundation website talking about the makeup of the Supreme Court. It's a four to three Democrat advantage on the court. Uh, You mentioned Justice Sam Irvin, the fourth or Jimmy Irvin uh, has been, uh, you say, the most sensible jurist in the majority and thus is the swing vote. And in the past, he has affirmed the legislature's authority to collect and distribute tax revenue. But, dot, 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 uh, are you confident that that's the way he's going? Is he going to be consistent in that uh, in that judicial philosophy? Well, I would hope so. But the fact that he sided with the majority on NAACP versus Moore, this is the gerrymandered legislature enacting constitutional amendments case that's been blasted by both the Uh, local and national media as being an absurd sort of exercise in judicial activism by the North Carolina Supreme Court. I I don't really hold out much hope that there's going to be consistency in Jimmy Irving's uh, 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 decision. I think complicating matters is that Jimmy Irving is running for a spot uh, to be reelected to the North Carolina Supreme Court So he has an active campaign going. Now, I'm hoping that he stays objective, and I think maybe he will. But you can't help but wonder whether there are political considerations that are running through his mind and the mind of his campaign managers 
when he's thinking about how to decide this case. Uh, my, again, my hope is that it's not, but it is uh, this uh, interesting timing that he is facing with the fact that he is going to have to make a massive decision in the Leandro case, and we might see that opinion come out before the election. I, I suspect it will come out after the election, but there's always the possibility that before the election, Jimmy Irvin and his Democratic majority decide that bypassing the legislature is a constitutional uh, possibility. Um, right, or he could it, wait till afterwards, and and then you essentially have uh, like a zombie court before the new justices are sworn in. I don't know which one's better. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that's right. It yeah. really is a no-win situation, especially for taxpayers who elect members to the General Assembly with the belief that they will oversee the collection and expenditure of taxpayer funds, only to find that an active court can go around their elected members of the General Assembly to extract taxpayer money via subversive means. Dr. Terry Stoops is the director of the Center for Effective Education at the John Locke Foundation. You can read his work at johnlocke.org. Dr. Stoops, always a pleasure to talk with you, and uh, have a good week. Try to get some rest. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Take care. (music) News Talk 1110-993-WBT, the Pete Callender Show. I'm Pete, in case that wasn't obvious. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. My entire professional career, I have covered the Leandro case (laughs) since I arrived at WBT low those many years ago as a reporter covering, uh, you know, city and county and schools uh, and state issues. And yes, the apartment fires and car crashes and such. But uh, the Leandro school funding lawsuit has been going on literally my entire professional career, my whole adult life. It's been going on. In fact, the guy who was a kid at the heart of the uh, lawsuit, Leandro, I think his first name was Robert or Thomas. I forget. Uh, He's now a lawyer in Raleigh (laughs) working for, I think, one of these uh, uh, lefty education organizations. And uh, that's that's who is pushing the Leandro litigation still. The state Supreme Court, this was uh, Dr. Terry Stoops in his piece at the John Locke Foundation's website, talking about this Leandro case, this hearing that is set for tomorrow, is the culmination of years of advocacy efforts by more than three dozen special interest groups, progressive organizations, and union-supported enterprises that are all members of... North Carolina Communities for the Education of Every Child. That's the name of the umbrella group. North Carolina Communities for the Education of Every Child. It's uh, intersectionality. They, uh, the shorthand for this group is Every Child NC. As part of its state-level systemic change strategy, the Z. Smith Reynolds Foundation awarded a $60,000 grant to the left-wing North Carolina Justice Center in 2020 in order to establish the Every Child NC Coalition. North Carolina Justice Center, this is, you know, part and parcel with the uh, Budget and Tax Center, the Progressive Pulse, Progress NC, like all of these, these are the blueprint NC organizations. Now, if you have arrived within the last, say, 10 years and you don't know what Blueprint NC was, 
Well, and it still is around. These organizations and people still exist, and they still work together. Blueprint NC was the blueprint right there in the name. It was the blueprint for how to frustrate Republicans who had just taken control of the General Assembly in 2011. And then Pat McCrory, when he became governor in 2016 and you know took office late 2016, early 2017, and, or sorry, 2012. Yeah, yeah, because he lost in 16. Um, and so you had this Republican control of the uh, of the legislature. Uh, McCrory wins a couple years later, and then you've got uh, the governor's mansion as well. So they have a super majority and they've got the governor. They can get through a lot of stuff. And so the Democrats who had been in power for over a century and a half uh, or almost a century and a half, they were super, super worried. Like, what are we going to do? Oh, my gosh. The Democrats are fine. They're all about democracy when they're in charge. When they control the legislature, they can uh, totally abide by the legislative process. If they do not control the legislature, well, then all bets are off. And they sue, and they uh, sue, and then they sue some more. It's the sue till blue strategy. And the Blueprint NC organizations, they met up, and they had a big powwow, and they put out a PowerPoint presentation, which somehow or another got leaked out of there. Maybe somebody left it on a desk or something. And uh, it, it got out. It got reported. And the whole strategy was spelled out. And what's amazing to me is that the same media that reported on what the strategy was going to be all suffered from collective amnesia for the next four years, unable to discern any kind of strategy, any kind of political motivation behind any of the actions that we were seeing. It gave rise to the lawsuits as well as the Moral Monday movement. Because you got to recall again, when the Blueprint NC crowd got together, the Democratic Party was a mere shell of its former self, racked by scandal, corruption, had sent several of their elected officials to prison, uh, the the former governor, Mike Easley, lost his law license. Uh, don't worry, he's a Democrat, so he got it back in a couple of years, um, as they all do usually. And uh, uh, you had Meg Scott Phipps, the ag commissioner. She went to prison. Frank Balance went to prison. Jim Black went to prison, the Speaker of the House, uh, right here from Mecklenburg County. All right, so there's just widespread corruption. And meanwhile, you've got uh, a rising economic picture in North Carolina with tax reforms, people moving to the state, and the state uh, enjoying all of the the benefits of the Republican reforms that were put in place, which showed, spoiler alert, the Democrats used to think the tax code needed to, uh, needed to be reformed as well. And so in steps Moral Monday movement, and they galvanize the voters in a way that the Democrats are no longer able to because of all the corruption. That's the backstory. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Oh, what the... The moon bats are circling. I mean, digitally on Twitter. Apparently, I have angered the nest with uh, <laughs> with some comments about our U.S. Senate candidate Sherry Beasley. I will get to that. Let's just let it let's let it simmer for a little while. Uh, talking about the Leandro uh, school funding lawsuit, it's going for oral arguments in front of the North Carolina Supreme Court tomorrow, and. Um, the uh, the effort on the left, which has been pushing this through the courts, because as uh, Dr. Terry Stoops earlier, uh, we had him on and he talked about in his piece that uh, Democrats have used the courts now to advance what they because they thought they may be able to retake the legislature in 2020. And that didn't happen. 
And so uh, now they are moving it through the courts. And they're doing this uh, with years of advocacy under an umbrella organization called Community North Carolina Communities for the Education of Every Child. North Carolina Communities for the Education of Every Child, or NC Communities for the Education, or NC Com EE Child. As Eric points out, this is what I was missing. The NC Com EE Child or NC Com E Child. I'm no expert, but I think I found the problem, Pete. That's there it is. Bam. The logic is undeniable. <laughs> let me go. Let me go over to Jim. Hello, Jim. Welcome to the show. What is going on, sir? Hey, Pete. Yeah, hey. we've talked about the North Carolina Department of Education many times. I think we both would abolish it. Uh, but the, the Leandro case, which I, like you, I've been reading about it, I don't know, 20, 25 years now. It, was it not about the most rural of the, of the counties in North Carolina not having adequate uh, educational funding? Correct. That's how it started. There were five, I think, of the uh, poor counties out west that said, look, you give us these state allocations for operational expenses, uh, but we don't have any money to raise for supplemental uh, pay for teachers and supplemental funding for our schools. Uh, We don't have a tax base for that. And so you need to give us more money for this. And then, of course, over the years, as it trudged along through the courts, more and more counties, including Charlotte Mecklenburg, joined in on this. You mean for Charlotte Mecklenburg itself, or they joined in as uh, plaintiffs toward those or well, maybe I've got yeah. that reversed. No, they were, yeah, they were plaintiff interveners is what it was called. They were called the Penn Interveners. And I think this was Blanche Penn, as a matter of fact, uh, local education activists. Um, but it's funny because this uh, that group of plaintiffs from Charlotte-Mecklenburg, um, they've been working alongside the original Leandro plaintiffs for you know more education funding, but they were granted limited intervention so they could pursue claims related to a specific subset of CMS. And what's funny is that the person that they had hired in order to help them out, Anita Earls, who is now one of the judges on the bench hearing the trial. Well, when you say subset of CMS, you're talking about some poor areas of Mecklenburg County? I believe it was actually... By the CMS, by public education? For CMS, I believe uh, that, well, the Penn interveners specifically, uh, they were, I thought, interested in, let me see here. I thought they were interested in the, it was like the redistricting stuff, the, or not redistricting, but the, yeah, the, the school boundary issue. I think that was what they were, um, let me see here, here we go, yeah, uh, Justice Earls. Uh, says that although she signed the plaintiff intervener's initial complaint, she did not need to recuse herself because the facts and claims at issue, which largely concerned student assignment policies in CMS. See, so they, they use Leandro as a vehicle to try to advance all sorts of other types of education-related issues. Yeah, well, Pete, I was going to make a couple of general comments. Of course, my main comment is let's abolish the whole thing, privatize the whole thing. We know that's not going to happen anytime soon. But I, I would be I would be for maybe a reverse Leandro case being filed right now. And I would I would I, if when I say reverse, I'm talking about all the money that's going in, particularly into these big city systems in, in North Carolina, the Mecklenburgs, the Wakes, the Forsyth, the Guilfords, Buncombs, all these big cities where you've got systems with people that obviously are not professional. 
They don't even want to show up, and they're overpaid. Now, they're just highlighting that they've got 4% here in Charlotte Mecklenburg, and they still said they're not getting enough. Well, no, on the state level. Right. State well, level so, in Mecklenburg. Right. So keep in mind. They're still not getting enough money. Well, so keep in mind, though, that all of the, the base pay that the uh, – so, again, the state, the state pays for operations and the counties fund uh, capital, right? So that's why we do bond referenda. We build the schools. The counties build the schools. Now, the counties can add additional money to that if they wish through the county commission, but the state funds operations, and that includes the uh, teacher salary schedule, and that's based on uh, the, the money that goes out to the, to the schools. It's based on the, the, the per-pupil funding formula, right? So all of, the, all of the counties are getting the same amount of money per head from the state, and the teachers make the same amount of money no, no matter where they are from a state perspective. Charlotte Mecklenburg, uh, they supplement that. They add more money in, and the poor counties say they cannot because they don't have the tax base to do so. Yeah, but I would argue that they're still uh, uh, grossly overpaid. And I would make one other comment, which I've mentioned to you before, too. A brand-new high school just opened. They were just touting it right there on your radio. Yep, Palisades. Uh, Yeah. And that's probably a twenty-five to a thirty-five million dollar campus. I might be five million high. Pete, there there is no shortage of money that's going. And you just mentioned capital facilities on the local level. Right. There is no shortage of money that's going into facility in this state in the public education system. I will attest to that. You ride by, and these are fabulous campuses for public education all over this this state including uh, tech schools and the university system. It's got to be $10, $15 billion worth of capital facility. What if just 20 or 30% of that money, Pete, got diverted to paying teachers even more money, getting rid of the deadweight teachers that don't perform, all they ever do is want another raise, well, and, 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 and stress curriculum, going up for school, and an outcome for the students. Right. So part of the problem there is capital is not an ongoing expense per se. It can be. I mean, obviously, if you've got uh, maintenance costs and, and capital replacement costs in your budget, like that can be. Uh, but the a lot of that stuff is funded with bond referenda. Uh, and again, in Mecklenburg County, voters have approved virtually every school bond going back, you know, 40 years or so. Now, look, you're not going to get any kind of argument from me against, well, K-12 government school monopoly in general, but also the uh, the way they build the schools. I, I remember this was, uh, gosh, now almost, well, probably about 20 years ago. Guy Chamberlain with Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools, the the building supervisor guy, and uh, he was, you know, giving these presentations. We were going through this huge boom, and they needed to build all these schools. You remember this, right? They had all the kids in the trailers on all of the campuses, and the Board of Ed did not want to build schools in certain parts of the county, and they would not adopt sort of a... a, a a boilerplate blueprint for all of the schools. They, I mean, they, I remember there was an argument about sloped roofs. Why would you b- keep building schools with flat roofs, right, which then the, the roofing costs cost more over time because you got to re- re- replace the roofs and stuff, and then there's this battle between the HVAC systems up on top of them or whatever and the roofers, whatever. But there, there, are, there was not a uniform design that they could just pick up and say, here you go, let's do that, uh, here and here and here, and you save on... The blueprint costs, essentially. And there's huge yeah. fight about that. Yeah, Pete, let me make one comment right there. They're building these high schools right now with uh, uh, 
literally 70 to 80 percent completion rate of some of the finest athletic facilities mm-hmm. that, that's ever been seen. Yeah. And, and, and I remember when I came through high school, which was a uh, hundred years ago, <laughs> that the, the boosters, the parents, fundraisers got together to put up bleachers for the, for the football field. That doesn't happen anymore, Pete. Right. Well, no, because that's not right. Because that's not equal. Right. No, I agree. Because they, the argument is that if one school gets it, every other school like it should also get the same. Jim, I, I got to run. I appreciate the call. It's the. I mean, this is the equity argument uh, that uh, if you do. I remember, you know, Arthur Griffin, the former school board chair, talking about half brick on the outside of a building, and if one building that was older, Myers Park, whatever, if it's full brick, then we should have full brick at all of these other schools and. Guy Chamberlain was like, well, you don't need full brick. We we can just do the facade with half brick. It saves on the cost. And Griffin was like, no, no, no. Equity dictates full brick, full brick has to be the same. And this is, this is one of the beefs I have with all of the K-12 model, which is I went to a college, didn't have a football team. Why does every high school have to have a football team? Why don't you give people choice? News Talk 1110-993-WBT. So the Leandro story starts way back in 1994. Five NC County school systems, Cumberland, Halifax, Hoke, Robison, and Vance, as well as families of students attending schools in those systems, filed loss, a lawsuit against the state of North Carolina. By the way, Democrats in control of the state at that point. As well as the State Board of Education, Plaintiffs argued that the local schools did not have enough money from state taxpayers to meet the state constitutional obligation to provide an education. The suit was titled Leandro v. State of North Carolina, named for Kathleen Leandro and her son Robert, the first plaintiffs named in the original complaint. Eventually, the case took on the new title of Hope County Board of Ed versus the state, but, yeah, you know, Leandro, shorthand name, that's been in use now for like 28 years. Larger, wealthier school systems then jumped into the legal proceedings as Leandro moved forward, sensing money in the water. Wake, Charlotte-Mecklenburg, Durham, Winston-Salem, Forsyth, and Asheville schools, they all argued that the state had failed its obligations to them as well. In 1996, the North Carolina Court of Appeals rejected claims from these plaintiffs and from the groups that had intervened in the case. The Court of Appeals said no, but the North Carolina Supreme Court reversed course. A unanimous opinion in 1997 by Chief Justice Burley Mitchell concluded that two sections of the state constitution combined to guarantee every child of this state an opportunity to receive a sound, basic education in our public schools. And that's where that line comes from. It's not in the Constitution. Despite this guarantee, the state Supreme Court's majority agreed with the appeals court, the lower court, that the constitutional obligation did not mean that the plaintiff school systems were entitled to major funding increases. Okay, so even when they said, yes, there is a constitutional guarantee for a sound basic education, they agreed with the lower court in saying that that doesn't entitle you to these massive funding increases. 
This gets to what is a sound basic education. So the case then returns to the trial court. You got a Wake County Superior Court, Judge Howard Manning. He spent two decades holding hearings. I attended a couple of them. I remember Jim Pusley, the former Charlotte Mecklenburg School Superintendent, getting uh, uh, hauled up there to testify about what CMS is doing because what did he call it? A uh, academic genocide is what Man- uh, Manning called it, looking at the CMS test scores. Called it academic genocide. At one point, Manning ordered the state to provide pre-K services to at-risk students. Then there was the Leandro II decision, uh, which came from that uh, that ruling. And that Leandro II decision was authored by Judge Robert Orr, Bob Orr. This is the guy who's been anti-Madison Cawthorn. He's now running around talking about, you know, democracy and all of that. He's a never-Trumper. I think he left the Republican Party. He rejected Manning's mandate of pre-K. Once again, the state Supreme Court did not order additional education spending in Leandro II, even in that case, right? Carolina Journal reporting, by October 2016, Union County Superior Court Judge David Lee took over the case, Democrat. One month later, voters placed Governor Cooper in the governor's mansion, and um, that's when you got the attorneys representing state government working with the Leandro plaintiffs. They all get on the same page. They then get the judge, who's on the same page too, to allow them to hire the independent consultant, the San Francisco-based West Ed. West Ed develops its report, says you got to spend like $8 billion more in order to make sure that every kid gets this sound basic education. We're going to do that with like uh, diversity and equity inclusion department hires and stuff. You know, the nuts and bolts. And uh, that then prompts the legislature to say, whoa, 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 you can't just take money. If we don't allocate it, you can't just siphon money out of the government coffers. We are the originators of budget allocations. And so this is the fight that they're going to have oral arguments over tomorrow. How far will the the judicial activism go? We're going to find out.